But when my kids hear that same song, we end up, it's some music that we've been listening to in my household lately. My, my kids, all four of them, they immediately just start dancing and moving around. And even the 16-month-old, she's kind of got a little bob thing that she likes to do. So uh, I don't know, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because kids end up doing things a little different than adults sometimes. Am I right? They, they love to play pretend and we're kind of over that. They love to run to get to everywhere, and uh, we'll get there in time. And, and one of the things that kids love to do, and, and that's why I wanna talk about this morning, it's the title of our series, is they love to be upside down. And they love it. We were at a soccer games yesterday morning because it's Saturday in the fall and I'm an American, and uh, so the kids are playing soccer, and there's this little girl, she was a goalie for one team. Middle of the game, she just busts out a cartwheel um, <laughs> just for added flair because for kids, being upside down is fun. All right, hanging on the monkey bars by their ankles or uh, their crazy Uncle Larry comes over. It's like, pick me up, put me upside down. I mean, they just think it's fun. And they get to see their world in a very different way. But have you noticed that as you get older, being upside down sounds awful. <laughs> Who wants to do a cartwheel, <laughs> right? How much money would you have to pay someone not to pick you up by your ankles right now? <laughs> it sounds terrible. And even just our, our regular language that we use, our everyday speech, we use upside down, not to, for connotations of fun, but confusion. You're having a bad day at work and you can't figure out where anything is. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just kind of having an upside down kind of day. We, it, we use it to talk about financial devastation. Oh, because of the, the market, my, my house, it's upside down. And we also use it to talk about total devastation. When a, an event happens that just seems to spin our world out of control, we say that was an upside down sort of thing. And it's, Pastor Micah and Pastor Ty led us in prayer. I mean, we've, we've had some really upside down sort of weeks, haven't we? Hurricanes and flooding and earthquakes. Did you know there's another hurricane hitting right now? It's, it's amazing. And then this past Sunday night's deadly massacre in Las Vegas. And, and these events, they, they make you struggle to, to find your bearing and, and to find your footing because it feels like somebody switch, flipped a switch on gravity Everything's just kind of not how you thought it was. And we feel, but they don't just have to be these large-scale events because a lot of times that's stuff we're watching on the news and we can't believe it, but it's not affecting us. But the real upside-down events are the ones that are more personal. It might be a car accident or it might be a, a diagnosis, a failed opportunity or relationship, the loss of a job or loss of a loved one. And those times we do, we feel like we're, we're sitting on the ceiling or in, a, in another world because everything's just twist turned upside down and, and we just don't want to be upside down anymore. We want to be right side up. But the funny thing about upside down is it, it really is sort of a matter of perspective, isn't it? Because if you're upside down long enough, you might actually start to believe that you're right side up. And the right side up is upside down. 
In fact, if you were born into a world, let's say, that was always upside down, how would you even know any different? What would it take to show you the truth? And if you saw it, what would it take to get you to that right side up world? We have been in the book of Matthew. In fact, if you can open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. If you do not have a Bible, you can put your hand up and our ushers are uh, getting some of those for you. If you're unfamiliar with church and kind of new to that, first of all, just welcome. We're glad to have you here. But Matthew is one of the biographies of Jesus. There's four of them. They're found in the New Testament, which is the, really the second portion uh, talking about Jesus and what he did. And you can find that in your table of contents. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. And in these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at these teachings of Jesus and they come across as upside down to the natural way we look at our world. But I think that as we study them, as we understand them, we'll see that Jesus is actually opening up another way of being. Truly a different kind of humanity, even a different world, you might say. It's the one that's actually right side up. And it's the one that when you enter, you find real life. But Jesus doesn't actually talk about it in terms of upside down and right side up. He talks about it in terms of kingdoms. So this morning, I really breaking up the sermon into two portions you see there in your notes. We want to ask the questions about what is this kingdom and then how do we get into it? We're going to start in Matthew 5, verses 1 and 2. Read it right here. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, he being Jesus, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them. This is the beginning of what is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Now, according to chapter 4, Jesus at this point really had a two-pronged ministry. He would teach and proclaim the kingdom and he would do healings, which would demonstrate the kingdom. He teaches the kingdom, and he heals. He teaches, and he heals. And so when we get to chapter 5, verse 2, and it says he opened his mouth and he taught them, we already know what the main topic is going to be about. It's going to be about the kingdom. And it's true. Chapters 5 through 7, he is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. But then in chapters 8 and 9, he, we look at a couple of closer stories of healing. Well, what is the kingdom of heaven as Matthew writes about in this gospel? Well, I think there's three helpful pictures that we get that are leading into chapter five. First of all, it's the kingdom of God. To say kingdom of heaven in Matthew is simply another way of saying the kingdom of God. Matthew was primarily writing to a Jewish people who had a little more hesitancy in writing out the name of God too often. So he used what was typical in that time to use the word heaven in its place. But it means the same thing. Now, unfortunately for us, when we have the word heaven in there, it makes us simply think about, okay, everything he's talking about is only becoming relevant when this life is over. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom, he's really talking about God's reign, his rule, which breaks into our world in the person of Jesus, radically changing what this life looks like right now and continues into eternity. Simply put, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God in contrast to the kingdom of the world. That's why the entire sermon is focused on really answering one question. What are the citizens of the kingdom of God like? 
And the answer time and time again is that they are very different from the world. Different in their expectations, different in their priorities and their agenda and their ethics and relationships, different in their attitudes, all stemming from the fact that they have sworn allegiance to a different king. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God and it is in the world. Secondly, it's the kingdom of light. Going back to Matthew chapter four, again, he, he gives us this at the time 700 year old quote from Isaiah nine. And in it, he describes the coming of Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 16 in Matthew four, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. See, Matthew understood what he saw in Jesus' coming. He saw the world as dark and in death. And if you read the rest of Isaiah 9, you quickly see that the light that was coming was not only Jesus, but also the kingdom that he was bringing on his shoulders. Darkness in the Bible is an expression of ignorance towards God. It's a futility of mind. It's a lack of understanding. It's an alienation from God and his purposes. But light, light is the picture of truth, of understanding and God's revelation. And so what we're to do with this picture is we're to imagine this house that's all lit up or maybe a city up on a hill. And as you look out in the darkness, it's dark everywhere and there's nowhere to get your bearings, but then you see this one place right in the midst of it, a place that's totally different from all the area around it. And that would be a place of understanding and that would be the place of hope. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of light in the darkness. Lastly, it's also the kingdom of life. The other part of that Isaiah passage, Matthew quotes, tells us that they were living in the region and the shadow of death. See, the kingdom of the world is not only a kingdom of darkness, but also of death. A death that goes back to the Garden of Eden, back all the way to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 3, where death first took hold, when our world was ruptured and tainted and this kingdom of death began bringing with it sickness and cruelty and hatred and disaster and selfishness and pride and pain. But Jesus' healings show that that kingdom is starting to unravel and that he's bringing something different. Still Matthew chapter 4 verse 24 so his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed with demons, those having seizures and paralytics and he healed them. Jesus heals because his kingdom is undoing the kingdom of death and all its effects. And yet those healings really are just a, a taste of what else that he has to offer. A few drops, if you will, spilling over from the eternal and abundant life sourced in Jesus himself and found in his kingdom. Because as Jesus will teach later on in Matthew 7, to, to enter this kingdom is to enter into life. So the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of life in the midst of death. And so we, we have these two different kingdoms. On one side, we have God's kingdom of light and life. And on the other side, we have this world's kingdom of darkness and death. And set side by side, it reminds me of those uh, visually stunning kingdoms set up in J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. 
You have the, the world of the elves in Rivendell, and you have this world of just death and destruction in the place they call Mordor. And yet kingdoms, while they do well to give us a graphic picture, if we're honest, we have difficulty trying to mesh up this sort of picture with our own world, because we don't live there, either of those places. We live in the good old US of A, Southern California, Orange County, doesn't look like either of those places. So I want to try this morning a, another way of thinking about it. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been in pop culture through TV and even scientists talking about this kind of stuff, the, this idea of multiple realities or parallel dimensions or multiple universes seems to pop up then and again. One of the most popular shows of last year is one called Stranger Things. It's on Netflix. And in this show, a, a kid goes missing. And yet there's something about his disappearance that make his friends think he's still alive and he's still around in the town, but he is in a different dimension, which they call the upside down. And his kid's trapped there and it still looks like his town and the same buildings are still there and the same streets and the same trees, except that, well, it's a lot darker and he's getting sick while he's there. And we know that if he stays there, his only end result is death. Now here's why I think it's helpful connections because everybody who watch, watches this show ends up thinking or laughing with their friends, oh man, I just don't wanna end up in the upside down because they assume that they already aren't. But the way that the scriptures inform us about this is that those who are apart from Christ, it's not that they need to fear going to live in the upside down, it's that they already do, and they just don't know it. It looks like life because it's all that we know. It echoes some of the reality of the true dimension. There's bits of love that break through, bits of kindness, but they're always tainted. And it's a dimension of darkness and death that we are all born into and we are in need of some sort of great power to bring us to the other side where life is found. Now take that picture and then let's listen what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter two. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Do you see what he's talking about? He's saying you were dead, but what? You were moving around? It's a different kind of death. You were dead, but you were following the world. You were following its prince. As if you read further on, you're following your fleshly desires and it's destined for a bad end. He's essentially saying all of you were living in this upside down. But then Paul's not done. He says this in verse four, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I don't know if that's helpful to you, but it sounds like the scripture's presenting some sort of interdimensional exchange where you're still able to work and live around those who are caught up in this upside down dimension of death, but at the same time, you are now part of God's dimension with God's light and God's life now and forevermore. 
But why should this help explain things? Or why does it even matter? Well, I think because Monday afternoon, I was able to watch footage that people took on their phones of automatic gunfire raining down into a crowd of people trying to enjoy a concert. And we have to come to grips with that. How do we understand that? I went online and I saw pictures of people dead on the ground that were supposed to, it was supposed to be a fun night for them in Las Vegas. And you know what I was reminded of? This Isaiah quote from Matthew, and that we are still a people. We still are, live among a people dwelling in darkness. And according to the worldview of the scriptures, that one man, that shooter, was not an anomaly, but rather a single radical expression of the disease defined as sin and rebellion against God. He put himself first and everyone else behind. That's not the only way it gets expressed, is it? So what does Christianity offer in the wake of such darkness and death? First of all, we know where the darkness and the death comes from. And secondly, we know the one who brings the light and the life into it. And so the question next is, though, who gets to enter into this kingdom of life and light? And so Jesus' teaching begins into Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I recognize these statements aren't the easiest to understand. They almost sound like a greeting card introduction into the real meat of the sermon. They sound really nice. We just don't know what to do with them. Well, first, we need to know that to be blessed by God means to have found favor, to have received God's stamp of approval. It's not a description of, you know, potential happy feelings one might have. It's, It's what God declares to be true of their character. And like I said, these are those who may seem upside down to this world. In this first statement, just verse 3, which we're concerned about this morning, it's put there to know by what manner we come to enter into God's kingdom and the continuing disposition we're supposed to have. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit doesn't mean those without any money. It also doesn't mean those who are cowardly or or weak-spirited. Through the Old Testament, the use of the word poor uh, progresses from a purely material meaning, as we would think of poor today, to a more spiritual sense. Those who have nothing to bring to God. Now, the reason this occurred or this progression happens is because the the psalm writers and the prophets uh, recognized that it was often the materially poor who knew they had no refuge but God. And so they would cry out to him and they would depend upon him fully and they understood that they were unable to save themselves and so they looked to God to do the saving. Well, to be poor in spirit is to come to that conclusion that you are spiritually bankrupt. 
You have nothing to offer to God, nothing to plead, no favor to buy. It's to acknowledge that you cannot gain entrance to God's kingdom. And it is to these that God gives entrance to his kingdom. Let me say that again. Spiritual poverty is to acknowledge that you cannot gain entrance into his kingdom. And it is to these and only these that God gives entrance to his kingdom. Well, that sounds upside down. Well, what does it mean? It means it's not by your strength. It's not by your intellect. It's not by your superior morality. It's not by an impressive pile of good works. It's not by religious action or piety. There's no one you can pay. There's no matter of fame or influence. There's nothing about you or what you can do that will get you into his kingdom. British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He says, there is a mountain a, a great mountain that you have to scale and, and heights that you have to climb. And the first thing that you must realize is that you cannot do it. You are utterly incapable in and of yourself. And any attempt to climb that mountain of your own strength only shows you have no idea how big it is. You can't climb the mountain. Now that goes contrary to our human nature, doesn't it? That's not the American way. Maybe it's because he's a British preacher. I don't know. That's not how we get things done. In America, you see a mountain and you get over it, right? Or so we think. That's why I like this idea of sort of this picture of this parallel reality is because mountains, we're convinced we can get over them, but the only way you're crossing dimensions into God's kingdom of light and life is by the work and the power of God himself. Well, to be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that we cannot enter God's kingdom on our own. In reality, what we're talking about still is repentance. But if repentance, we we tend to focus on the change of direction, poverty of spirit is letting you know that change has worked its way down to the very core of who you are. It's to throw yourself upon the mercy of God and to depend upon his grace, God's gift to grant you entrance into the kingdom even though you're unworthy. It's what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And so this is the big idea I'm hoping you're coming away from this morning with and to make sure, I made sure it was printed at the bottom of your notes. God's kingdom of light and life is only for those who acknowledge they can't get in. God's kingdom of light and life is only for those who acknowledge they can't get in. I recognize this idea is offensive. And it's particularly offensive to the strong and to the moral. Because the strong man says this, I'm good enough already. In fact, if if you're thinking this way in your mind, this is exactly what's wrong with Christianity. I mean, you got what you wanted in life because you made it yourself and you've got the smarts to to make it happen to to see through this backwards way of thinking. You might even have said this, Christianity is just a crutch for people who can't make it on their own. And you know what? You're right. It is. But the problem is not that Christianity is a crutch, it's that you do not see yourself as a cripple. Charles Spurgeon, another British preacher, 
Baptist preacher said this, there's nothing which prevents a man coming to Christ like a good opinion of himself. Isn't that true? You see, the, the real problem is that we have no idea of the holiness and the majesty and the grandeur of God, nor any clue about the severity and wretchedness of our rebellion and sin against him. And when we put those two ideas together, it's not just that we're weak or that we're crippled, it's that we're dead. But thankfully, Christ is far greater than a crutch. He has said, I am the resurrection and the life. And in him, we find the entrance to this different world. The moral says this, I will make myself good enough. This is the person who recognizes their sin but seeks to cover over it with good works and earn his way in. In the strange story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, Dr. Jekyll, disturbed by the evil that Mr. Hyde has done, he resolves never again to take the potion. He resolves to instead devote himself to charity and good works. But by chapter 10 of the book, he sits on a bench in a park and he just starts thinking about all the good things he's been doing. And he thinks about the other people he knows that just are not quite as good as how he's good. And he starts to convulse and to shudder and he looks down and realizes, without any potion, he has once again turned into Mr. Hyde. And it's a clever illustration that our wickedness cannot be covered with piles of good works because rather than shrivel our pride and self-centeredness, good works only serve to inflame them. Maybe you've experienced or in the midst of the same venture, you, you know your sin and you know your weakness and so you've resolved to do better and to be better and yet it's simply leading you to a new kind of superiority, of self-righteousness and a pride which themselves become the sin that you were desperately trying to cover over in the first place. We cannot deal with our sin through morality because our very motives, our heart has to be transformed. It has to come from grace, a grace that comes to the sinner and says, I love you anyway, and I'll gladly pay the price for you. God's kingdom of light and life is only for those who acknowledge they can't get in. You cannot, but Christ can for you. Paul says as much in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's what we're talking about. That is the great upside down change that Christ does because we have acknowledged our poverty and he entered into it for us. But poverty of spirit's not only the way of our entrance, it is also the continuing character of those who have entered. Simply put, we are never supposed to forget God's grace that brought us in and the grace that we still need each and every day to lead us on. We're never to forget that holiness and grandeur of how amazing God is, nor the vile wretchedness that was our sinful state. We're supposed to daily live in amazement that Christ lowered himself that we might be saved from our sin. 
We are the undeserved, undeserving entrance. We got in and we weren't supposed to. And yet we, we also have a problem. We can easily start to believe that we did do it on our own. It creeps in there. We develop a, a sort of spiritual amnesia to our own beginnings. We start to think we earned our way in or that somehow we're smarter or holier or better than those who have yet to find their way in. And so a new form of pride begins, one that looks down on others still lost in the kingdom of darkness and death and somehow we even start to question, well, do they deserve to come in? And we treat them different. Friends, brothers and sisters, the truth of Christ is offensive enough. We do not need to add to it with our own repulsive, selective memories. We must remember our weakness. We must remember whose strength carried us in and whose strength we must depend upon still. Because we are, as Martin Luther once said, mere beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You see, receiving a gift of bread, even if it's the bread of life, doesn't make you better than anyone else. So let us examine, let us repent, but let it also provoke us to want to tell others where to find it. Not as arrogant know-it-alls, but as one beggar who got a gift. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is to be the continuing character of those who have received grace and who desire grace for everyone else. The series is called Upside Down. When you got this, you probably weren't sure what to do with it. It's like I said, it's a matter of perspective, isn't it? So have you decided which is upside down referring to? Is that our world or is that God's? It all depends on how you look at it. Unless God exists, then it all depends on how he looks at it. This morning, though we are at church, we need to recognize that we have people here from two different worlds, two different kingdoms. And my hope is that some of you might have just realized that your world is actually upside down and the world that you thought was crazy and upside down might be right side up. And my hope is that you might have this question inside you, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to escape this world of darkness and death? And the answer is here, empty yourself of pride, of effort, of any thought of earning any sort of favor with God or earning passage into his kingdom. In a moment when we sing again, you have the opportunity to pray and I hope that you would make this your prayer, that you would admit that because of my sin, I cannot do it. Therefore, I trust in you alone, Jesus, to take me there. It's as simple as that. And for my brothers and sisters, followers of Christ, during this time of singing, I'd ask that you too would have a prayer, that you would repent, that we would repent of our spiritual amnesia, that I would repent that I have forgotten the grace that brought me in and I've gotten in the way of the grace extended to others. That I would pray, make this poor self grow less and less. Jesus Christ, grow in me.
And whether you're praying the first prayer or the second, I would invite you to come forward during this last song and allow others to pray with you if you so desire. But let us put our poverty into song as we sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Heavenly Father, we thank you for an opportunity to be in your word and to look at your scriptures and be confronted by the stark realities of two kingdoms, of two dimensions, one where there is darkness and death and one where there is light and life because you are the gracious God who rules over it and you graciously bring us who deserve nothing but punishment into it that you might shower your great kindness upon us. Even now, move in our hearts that we might respond to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.